chapter 4. Second Timothy 4, and just going to be reading verses 14 through verse 18 of Second Timothy 4. Again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work, and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His word. Father, we just... I praise you and thank you for your your word and for your goodness, for your truth, for the opportunity again to gather together to praise your name and to worship you. It truly is a great honor and, and privilege. And as we come to this particular passage and this topic this evening, we just ask that you would just bless us with your truth. Uh, this doctrine is a truly a a wonderful and precious doctrine. And then we pray that you, your Spirit would remind us of these things and apply it to our hearts and um, that we might truly give all glory and honor and praise to you for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness toward us. And so we pray now for your blessing upon our time and upon our, your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, here at the very end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, he gives Timothy some important instructions. He gives him a warning, warning of danger, danger such as Alexander the coppersmith, and we don't know exactly uh, who he was or what it was specifically that he did, other than what Paul says here, that he resisted our words. We trust that it probably means that he uh, was maybe persecuted in some way. and um, But anyway, Paul is warning Timothy of this, this dangerous person, this individual, uh, whose heart is not set on the truth, uh, but is set on evil and wickedness. He also updates Timothy on his current condition, that uh, he is basically in prison awaiting the conclusion of his trial, and quite likely preparing himself to death. And the reference to that he's been saved from the mouth of the lions may mean that at least temporarily he's been spared. But uh, again, we don't know exactly uh, the reference there. But he also goes on to note that uh, many have abandoned him for whatever reason. And yet even in the midst of such discouragement, his only hope and solace is that the Lord was with him. Indeed, as he says, the Lord stood with me. So no one else stood with him, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me 
in the midst of his trial, so that even in, again, in this rather discouraging circumstance, Paul was still enabled to proclaim the gospel, right? There was no one else there in the court, in the crowd, there to support him, to cheer him on, to even be praying uh, for him. They all had dispersed, but the, the Lord was with him, and he was greatly strengthened and encouraged, and the gospel went forth. But again, in many ways, as Paul describes here, and really throughout this letter, and I think it might be one of the one of the last, if not the last, letter that Paul wrote. Anyways, it it really it touches on a very low point in in his life, and yet, even in the midst of all these dangers, of all these discouragements and disappointments, the apostle finds great strength and comfort and the glorious promises of the gospel that he's been privileged to proclaim. In fact, these promises give him a certain hope, and and even a sure and certain hope, and a confidence that even though he may be facing death, he knows, as he says in verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, upon first reading, it may seem like Paul is saying that the Lord will deliver him from death. But this isn't really what he's saying at all. Evil and condemnation are not going to overtake him. Even the evil that would be uh, putting to death this innocent man, right? We know Paul was, uh, had no uh, true uh, charge against him. But even that great evil meant that Paul would not fall to destruction. It's true he may lose his life, and indeed he did lose his life. But he knows that the Lord will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Right. So Paul's hope here isn't deliverance from death, that is, deliverance from the end of this life. But his sure and certain hope is deliverance from eternal death and destruction. The Lord will preserve him now and on into eternity in this life and then even after death in the glory of the heavenly kingdom. Of course, then this leads Paul to the doxology of praise that follows. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this hope of the Apostle Paul certainly is our hope as well in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and it is the glorious doctrine known as the preservation or perseverance of the saints. And this is the subject of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17. Now, the doctrine of Perseverance of the saints is often, we often know it as the, as being the P in the acronym TULIP, um, the uh, doctrines of grace we may call them. And again, as we see with Paul's words to Timothy here, it's a doctrine which, which really is a source of great comfort and assurance to the believer. But it also serves as really the necessary conclusion to the previous four points of uh, of the tulip, right? So total depravity, total depravity, unlimited, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, <laughs> and irresistible grace. I'm almost making it the poisonous lilac. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, so yeah, so it, it, it becomes really the, the culmination and the logical conclusion to uh, the rest of those doctrines. But what is meant by perseverance? Well, to persevere means to endure, to, to press on and make it to the very end or to really finish the race. And that's another illustration we find uh, throughout the Scriptures. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we're, we're running in this race, this uh, race of, of life uh, throughout this life, and it takes endurance. If you're a runner, if you've been a runner, um, you know it takes a lot of work. Uh, and if you're going to get to the finish line, you need to persevere in order to reach the end. And again, so that becomes an apt picture throughout the scriptures uh, that our our life of faith in this world uh, is a a great race. And again, for the Christian, to persevere means to stay on the narrow path and uh, that they don't depart from it and they again reach the appointed destination. Of course, the appointed destination, even Paul mentions here the heavenly kingdom we sang from Psalm 16. uh, It's being in the glorious presence of the Lord where there's fullness of joy uh, and delight uh, and pleasures evermore, right? That's what we're headed toward. That's where we're going to go. And so when we persevere, that's where we're uh, the direction we're going. Now, in regards to salvation, again, it means then that if you're persevering, it means that you can't lose your salvation once God has saved you from your sin. Now, I do want to note here, though, that though there are some similarities, the biblical the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not necessarily the same thing as the common conception of once saved, always saved. And you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, once saved, always saved, or even eternal security. Well, you have to be careful when people mention that, because you need to know exactly what they're referring to. Again, there's a lot of similarities, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Once saved, always saved is, of course, true in a sense. Right? If you truly are saved by God's grace, well, then you can never become unsaved. Right? God uh, keeps us in His hand, and we cannot be plucked out or taken out. But all too often, those who make use of the once saved, always saved, that's been clouded by what we call the easy believism that is so prevalent in much of the evangelical church today. And this easy believism promotes the idea that essentially all you have to do is, is just say a little prayer or, or come down to the altar at a, a, you know, at a church or at some big revival. Say that little prayer, the sinner's prayer, and then you're saved now and forever, but with no regard to sanctification and our duty to obey the moral law of God. And of course now as we've been studying James in the, the morning service, as we've seen, it's a professing faith, right? So once saved, always saved tends to be a professing faith, right? I believe in Jesus, but there are no works which follow it, which means the faith being professed is likely a dead, fruitless faith. And as we've considered, that kind of faith is really 
no faith at all. And so again, we have to be careful when you talk about eternal security, once saved, always saved. Well, what does that mean? Some people means I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, and I can live however I want to live. No, perseverance of the saints is yes, we're we're secure eternally in the Father's hands, and we can't lose our salvation, but it also means that we persevere in godliness and holiness, seeking to glorify God in our lives. And so perseverance of the saints, because of the use of the term perseverance, gives evidence that we must diligently work at persevering to the end. And which we, again, we will do, but again, here's an important caveat, we can only do by the grace of God working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a very subtle difference, but it is very much an important one. <clears throat> and the confession notes about perseverance. It says, They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit. Right. So that's almost, you hear the, the echoes of the tulip there. God has, has elected and called and saved. That these ones can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And we see from this definition that, again, perseverance is the logical conclusion to God's eternal decree of predestination and His effectual call. And so, for example... Uh, consider how Paul emphasizes, emphasizes the certainty of perseverance. When he says in Romans 8 verse 30, uh, this is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Right. So Paul is, is laying out here that uh, there's doctrines of grace. Right. We've been predestined from before the foundations of the world, in time, at a particular point in time, that God has appointed for each individual that are His, He has called them to believe. And the ones that He calls, He then will justify because they will profess faith in Christ when, they call, when they're called. And once they're justified, He will also then glorify them. Now what's interesting here is that Glorification, again, which is the goal of, of perseverance, is so certain in this case, it's so certain for those whom God has predestined, called, and justified, that Paul speaks of it here in the past tense. Right? He says, These he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Right? He's glorified them. As if it's already certain and settled. That's how sure and certain it is. Because it is settled. Because it's been determined before the foundations of the world. And so our glorification, our perseverance, our eternal security is truly set. Now we also see the perseverance and eternal security of the believer in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we already referenced this a little bit in John 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So there's a couple things we see here. Uh, Jesus, uh, of course, identifying himself with the Father. Being in Jesus' hand is the same thing as being in the Father's hand. But the key point that he's saying is that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand once he has them. They, no one, right? The devil can't pull you out. Someone else can't pull you out. And no, you can't even jump out. You're held fast in the Father's hands. Those whom God has called and given to Christ, again, they can't be removed. Because He is the sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, and no one, not even the individual, can wrestle themselves away from God's hand. And of course, the true believer would never even have the desire to try to leap out and wrestle themselves away because they know that this is where their only hope and uh, confidence lies. And so this is the emphasis of perseverance. Once we've gained salvation sincerely and truly, we can't lose it. Now there are those, however, who do uh, profess faith in Christ And they have the outward appearance of being saved, and yet they do fall away. And these are like the seed. We have the parable of the sower, the seed sown among the rocks and the thorns in that parable. right? In both of those situations, those seeds, they spring up immediately. It looks like everything's fine. They look like great plants. But when trials and tribulations come, or when the cares and the concerns of the world come, they're swept away. They either have no root, and they wither, or they get choked out by these things. But because they perish, they only give evidence that they were never really saved to begin with, because they were not planted in the fertile soil. Now, a challenging passage in this regard is, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 8. And here we read this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Again, this passage isn't saying that it's possible for a person who's truly saved to lose their salvation. But it is stressing the fact that there are many who come very close to the kingdom of God, who enjoy even the blessings and the benefit of being members of the visible community, uh, covenant community of God, the church. Right? They, they make a profession of faith. They sit under the reading and the preaching of God's word. They, they pray. They partake of the sacraments. And yet in the end... They don't really believe in Christ. They're nothing but pretenders, even as Judas was. They've borne no good fruit, even though they were given many nutrients to grow on. 
Well, John clearly addresses these types. These types in First John two, verse nineteen, when he says they went out, went they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that that none of them were of us. So John's point here is: look, if they left, it meant that they were never truly a part of the community. They were never true believers. Otherwise, they would have stayed. But because they went out and left, they gave evidence that they were not true believers. Well, the confession also notes that though we persevere, again, it is by God's grace alone that we can do this. Right? Hence, some prefer the term preservation of the saints as opposed to perseverance of the saints. Right? The saints are preserved or are kept by God's grace in Christ Jesus. Again, it isn't a result of the exercise of man's free will, but it is a direct result of God's eternal decree of predestination, as we've already noted. And this gives us the assurance that God will indeed complete what He's started, and as we'll soon sing from Psalm 138, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. And so we have great comfort in knowing that God will not forsake the work of His hands. And this is reinforced by Paul in the New Testament. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. God leaves nothing unfinished. He will complete it. God began a good work in you from even before the foundation of the world, and He will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in the same way, the writer of the Hebrews notes that Jesus is not only the author of our faith, but He is also the finisher of our faith. So what He begins, He is also going to finish and complete. But even though preservation may seem like a better term, again, there's nothing wrong with the term perseverance. Again, as we, as we have defined previously, in fact, we're charged in 1 Corinthians 9 to run in such a way that you may obtain the prize, right? So to persevere, to endure, uh, to, uh, in order to obtain that prize. And we already mentioned another passage in Hebrews with that similar language. And so our running, though, Again, we have to remember our running is our spirit-empowered perseverance and endurance to the end. Well, then the third paragraph of the Confession addresses the fact that though we're to run and persevere and reach for the prize, it acknowledges that we often fall into sin and that we can, for a time, come under God's displeasure. And though this displeasure, though, isn't eternal, right? It's not eternal judgment. It's a time of chastisement. And so the confession says this, nevertheless, they may, <clears throat> through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, so just there's the outward as well as the inward temptations and, and trials, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, the means of grace, they fall into grievous sins. And for a time continue therein, 
whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit. They come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, having their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgment upon themselves. And so when we uh, separate ourselves from uh, from uh, the fellowship of the saints, when we separate ourselves from the means of grace, when we uh, fall into sin and we continue in that sin for a time, well then it, things will get rough, right? And we begin to have problems and struggles in our lives and unable to handle them. And we know ultimately why it is because we're not right with the Lord, but because of the stubbornness of our hearts, we we don't turn to Him, at least not at that time. But eventually, we will, if we are truly His. And so there may be this time in our lives when we become hardened in our sin, and we rebel against God. And again, not that we've lost our salvation, but again, we're temporarily swept away by worldliness. Now this might be, for example, the youth, the person who maybe goes away to, to college or somewhere and they rebel for a time against their faith and their covenantal upbringing. Or maybe it's someone who will struggle with a particular sin uh, for a time and they seemingly lose their, their connection to God. But again, in the end, if we're truly Christ, the prodigal son will return home broken and repentant. And their Father will be there ready to receive and forgive them. And this, consider Psalm 32, where David sings, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And so here David is describing how oppressive it was when he was in sin, he, he uh, was hard of heart. He wasn't turning to the Lord. He wasn't repenting and confessing of his sin. And how he just he felt the heavy hand of the Lord upon him. And then he goes on to saying that there was no relief that came until he repented of his sin. And he turned and he confessed to the Lord and the, sought the Lord's forgiveness and mercy and grace. And then he was restored and renewed. And again, alleviated from, from this distress. But we should be cautioned, right? As we think about these things, okay, well, I may fall into sin, I may struggle, but that's okay. I'm, I'm the Lord's got me. I'm not going to be lost. Well, we don't want to ever abuse the abounding grace of God. And we should be very cautioned that we don't want to tempt, put God to the test by purposely engaging in so-called prodigal living, right? And some can be so bold. I'm going to just go do what I want for a while. I'm going to sow my wild oats and put it off. Because the judgments, again, you may be a true believer, or maybe you won't be, Time will reveal it. But if you are a true believer, the judgments of God that you will endure in that time of rebellion by purposely engaging in this prodigal living will be very severe. And again, as the confession notes, God may bring upon us, it will indeed, it will hurt and it will also scandalize others. Right, as we think about our sin, our sin never affects just us. It always affects those around us as well. 
And so not only do we hurt ourselves, but we will hurt and scandalize those around us, especially those whom we love. It's for this reason, then, that we ought to be diligent in seeking to please and glorify God in all that we do. When we fall into sin, that we follow His Word, confess that sin, repent, and we seek His grace and mercy for forgiveness, that we may always remain in the glory of His light and not play around in the dangerous shadows where we can do great harm to ourselves and others. And so the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, though, is truly a blessed and comforting doctrine. And it's rooted, again, in the surety of the eternal decree of God. That God already knows the end from the beginning. And that He will bring us to perfect completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will not forsake the wonderful and amazing work of His hands of grace. So as we consider this glorious doctrine, well, truly we can conclude with the Apostle Paul, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You for this glorious reminder of this wonderful doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, that You hold us fast and that we can't lose our salvation. And that we are truly secure. That you will complete what you've begun in us through your spirit. But Lord, we are also very much cautioned to not take that for granted. To not abuse your abounding grace. And to not put you to the test. By thinking that we can continue in sin that grace may abound. So Father, we pray that you would truly work this truth in our hearts and our lives. That we would find great comfort and hope as we look toward the time of glory in your heavenly kingdom, when we will take our seat at your side to be with you forever and ever in the fullness of joy. It is a truly wonderful thing. And we praise you and thank you for preserving us and for keeping us and for being so good and kind to us, the undeserving creatures that we are. And yet we praise you and thank you, O God, in these things. And we pray that even as we are reminded of this and uh, the other instruction we received on this day, that we would be uh, truly equipped as we go forth in the world, uh, going about our, our typical duties and responsibilities this week, that you would challenge us to be a true beacon of light and hope in this world that so desperately needs light, and that you would help us to do the good works that you've called us to do. And that we would always remain steadfast in the glorious promises of your word. We pray, Father, that through our witness that many would come to know you and be drawn to you. and Especially that we ourselves would be drawn closer to you and closer to one another as the body of Christ in this place. So we just pray for your blessing upon us in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.